Okay, friends, the story begins. We are on the middle of page 34. We're continuing Pesuga de Zimra, the verses of praise. <clears throat> the bulk of Pesuga de Zimra, the verses of praise, where we try to develop a feeling of God's greatness and God's relevance simultaneously. They go hand in hand. Usually greatness and relevance don't go hand in hand. Usually the greater somebody is, the re the less relevant they are. Right. One of the reasons why when people start a sermon or a speech, there's a joke, right? They want to come down to earth. They want to be show you we're down to earth. I'm normal. I'm a human being. I have a sense of humor. Because the more great and I uh not not just great, but the more if somebody's too lofty, they're usually seen as less relevant. But for God, he is so great that he can even be relevant. And we try to internalize that message throughout the verses of praise section of prayer. And the big bulk of the verses of praise are the last five, is it five? Yeah, five, six chapters of Tehillim. So now we're up to the next one. We're on 34 in the middle. Praise the Lord. Right? Praise the Lord from the heavens. Let's read through the prayer real quickly. It's one of the more lengthy ones, but we'll just read through it, get the gist of what's going on, and what we're going to discover in the next half hour is that there's a place where heaven and earth meet, and we can we can strike an incredible balance. What did we title it on the on the WhatsApp? Who remembers? Anyone remember? Okay, there, there's a balance between. A passionate relationship and a responsible relationship. That's what I was thinking. I don't know if that's what I wrote. Which is a problem. If what I'm communicating doesn't reflect what I'm thinking. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay. You said sacred and meaningful. Sacred and meaningful. Okay. A relationship can be sacred. Sacred means that there's an objective value. And it could also be meaningful. There's a subjective element of it as well that's enjoyable and experiential which is where heaven and earth meet. We'll soon talk about that. But let's take a look at the prayer. Let's get the gist of what King David is praising God with. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the celestial heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all shining stars. Praise him, heaven and earth, the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. He has established them forever, for all time. Wait, they're not going anywhere. <laughs> he issued a decree, and it shall not be transgressed. Praise the Lord from the earth, sea monsters, and all that dwell in the depths, fire and hail, snow and vapor, stormy wind carrying out his command, the mountains, and all his fruit-bearing trees, and all cedars, the beasts, and the cattle creeping things and winged fowl, kings of the earth and all nations, rulers and all judges of the land, young men, as well as maidens, elders together with young lads. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name is sublimely transcendent. In English, God's name is great. It is unto himself. He's independent. Only its radiance is upon the heaven and earth. We can't even relate to God's name. We could only relate to his radiance. 
He shall raise the glory of his people, increase the praise of all his pious ones, the children of Israel, the people close to him. Praise the Lord. Okay. In a nutshell, we describe how the heavens, various layers of heavens, praise God. We describe how the various layers of earth praise God. That's how the commentary Ibn Ezra. Anybody heard of the Ibn Ezra? Ibn Ezra was a biblical commentary going back. I'm gonna I'm gonna guess roughly. You could check Wikipedia later, but I'm gonna guess roughly 700 years, maybe 800 years. He was a Spanish Sephardic uh, biblical scholar and philosopher. And he points out something fascinating about this prayer. This prayer is split into two. The first half of the prayer talks about how heaven praises God. The second half talks about how the earth praises God. Heaven and all that occupy heaven. The celestial beings, the heavens, the angels, the stars, the sun. The second half talks about how the earth and those who occupy the earth praise God. Now, just as a as a side point over here, who knew that uh, things other than God than humans praise God? Did anybody know that? Is that news? Uh, it was news until I read this uh, to Hillam. Okay, so there's a great book called Perik Shira. That's the Hebrew term. Perik Shira translates as chapter of song i don't know how they translate it in english like if you if you buy an english copy i'm sure they have a creative name for it is it also possibly song of songs so that's shir hashirim and we're going to talk about shir we'll talk about song of songs soon don't let me forget that because it's important you'll see how it ties in i'm glad you mentioned that perik shira is a collection of biblical verses that describe how every thing literally thing in the world praises God. So it will go through all the various animal kinds of life. Uh, dogs, chickens, cows. Bring various verses that indicate throughout the Bible that they praise God. Trees, plants, humans. And, and, and it just goes through everything. Basically goes through the whole gamut of existence praising God. And it, it's quite interesting. We don't actually know who wrote this book. Some say King David wrote the book even though he wrote Tehillim, which is quoting. But some say it was authored by King David. But um, there is no conclusive... It, I mean, it's that old. It's definitely it's been around. It's quoted in the Talmud, which is post-King David. Um, point being, things can actually praise God. But here's what the Ibn Ezra says. So we split this chapter of Tehillim into two. The first half, the heavens praise God and everything that occupies it. The second half, the earth and all that occupy the earth praise God. There was a rabbi in the um, late 1600s named Rabbi Yonatan, Rabbi Yonatan Ivshitz. He is known as the Yavitz, the Yavitz. He wrote a commentary on the Siddur going back 300, 400 years, a little bit before the Baal And he takes it a step further. He says, take a look as we describe how the heavens praise God. It starts from the highest of high and works its way down. Right? Praise the Lord from the heavens, the celestial heights, then the angels, a level lower, the sun and the moon, even closer to, to our reality. 
the stars, right? The water is above the heavens. So it's going from above to below. Then, if you look at the second half of the prayer, when it talks about earth praising heaven, it starts from the bottom and it goes upward. Um, take a look on one, two, three, four, five, six. Eight lines um, from the top of that prayer. Praise the Lord from the earth, sea monsters, and all that dwell in the depths. So starting from the greatest of depths, fire and hail, snow and vapor, stormy wind, right? It's going mountains. It's working its way up. So when it comes to heaven praising God, it starts from the highest to the lowest. When it starts from earth praising God, it starts from the lowest to the highest. At some point, heaven and earth are going to meet. At some point, there's going to be this uh, this unity between the two. What does heaven and earth represent? Or better yet, how do we unite both of these praises? <clears throat> Let's think deeply here. Let's think personally here. How do we praise God heaven style? What is the heaven perspective in praising God? Try to think deeply here, right? What is the earthly perspective of praising God? That's essentially what the prayer is talking about. There's the heaven perspective and its various layers. There's the earth perspective and its various layers. And here's what the Kabbalists explain. Something fascinating. Can I ask if it's got anything to do with the Mashiach? When the Mashiach comes, the heaven and earth will be like... I was thinking the same. Yeah. Okay, good, good, good. You guys are on the right track. But right now there doesn't seem to be a seamless a seamlessness. If you, is that a word? A seamlessness between heaven and earth. There seems to be a big difference, right? Um when, when Mashiach comes, they will be more seamless. And we got a taste of that, by the way, at the giving of the Torah. Prior to the giving of the Torah at Sinai, heaven and earth were were very distinct. They couldn't blend at all. To the extent that Abraham, which was prior to the giving of the Torah, could have taken tefillin, put them on, make blessings, throw them in the garbage. Because there's no sacred impact in this physical world. Heaven and earth aren't blending. Whereas post-Matan Torah, after the giving of the Torah, heaven and earth... Uh, blend quite beautifully. We don't necessarily appreciate it, but but in reality, they blend quite beautifully. Right, your tefillin, our our the physical hide becomes sacred. The Shabbat candles, something physical, becomes sacred. Your Shabbat dinner table becomes sacred. I'm just giving different examples, but any mitzvah, any physical mitzvah, the physical world becomes sacred. But I'd like to take a step back for a second. Kabbalists explain, and this is elaborated a lot in Hasidic teaching, that a relationship, there's two elements that come that make up a relationship. Relationship, if you want your a relationship to not be dead, it's like a heartbeat. Right? If that heartbeat's not moving, that's a bad sign. Right? The needle's gotta move. So a relationship is constantly beating. And this is referred to as what's called a ratsoi, which means to run, passion, and shuv, which means to come back. 
get grounded. Come back to earth. Be normal. Right? There's times where in our relationship with God, we're feeling passionate. We feel like we want to just connect. We feel spiritual. And there's times where we need to like come back to earth and focus on our responsibility. Whether it be doing the mitzvah and not just get lost in the passion or whatever it is. So, John, you mentioned Shir Hashirim before. Song of Songs by King Solomon. Shir Hashirim is a beautiful, beautiful book. One of the 24 books of the Bible. And it it it's essentially a romantic love poem that King Solomon wrote describing the relationship with God and the Jewish people as a marriage. And, and by the way, there's a backstory here. There was a time in history where the sages wanted to remove the book Song of Songs, Shir Hashirim by King Solomon, and not include it in, as one of the 24 books of the Bible. They thought that describing a relationship romantically with such language, explicit language, as Shir Hashirim tends to do, is irreverent. Right? It doesn't seem so respectful. And many of the sages thought, let's get rid of this. Until the great sage Rabbi Akiva, this is what the Talmud tells us. This is fascinating. This is going to be life changing in how you see and how Judaism and how we understand how Judaism views relationships. Rabbi Akiva came up and said, "If all of the books of the Bible are what's called kodesh, holy and sacred, this book is kodesh hakdashim. It's the sacred of the sacred." And it was also a play on words because the Kodesh HaKadashim represents that sacred space where the Kohen Gadol would do his service in on Yom Kippur. It's the only time he would go in where he would essentially meet God. If all the books are sacred, if the Torah is sacred, the book Song of Songs, Shir Hashirim, is the sacred of the sacred. It's the Kodesh HaKadashim. They were inspired by Rabbi Akiva, enlightened by Rabbi Akiva. Shir Hashirim remained as part of the Bible. Song of Songs. But the the question we got to ask ourselves is why is our relationship with God referred to as a song? Commentaries address this. On a very simple level, you could say, and this is this is true, it should be pleasant. My music is pleasant. My music to my ears, right? A relationship should be like music to our ears. It should uplift us. Our relationship with God should be refreshing. It should be mesmerizing. It should be inspiring. There's a great line by Avram Fried. Have you heard of Avram Fried? Avram Fried is a popular singer in the Jewish world. Um, check him up on YouTube. He had a great line. He he's a real. He's not just a performer. He's he's really you know he's not just trying to. He's more like he's singing and, and you happen to be watching him. You know what I mean? He's not like, it's not a show. It's the real deal. You could hear it in his voice. So there was a somebody was interviewing him and he said, a speech could make you cry, could make you laugh, but only music can make you dance. Speech can't get you to dance. Only music can. Our relationship with God as described by King Solomon, it's the song. It's the song of songs. It's supposed to move us. 
But there's another explanation. In order for music to be music, there needs to be a series of notes that are up and down, that go high and that go low. Because if you just have that same monotonous note, right, if it's like the heartbeat, if the needle's not moving, right? If you have that monotonous note, it's not music. Mm, that's not music, right? There has to be a series and blend of being up and down. They have to be beautifully blended together. And that's what our relationship with God is. It's it's a series of passion, connection, feeling close, and then focusing not even on our closeness, but going back to earth and focusing on our responsibilities, these ups and downs. That's what a relationship is. In Kabbalistic or Hasidic terminology, Ratzoi, running to God, Shuv, returning back to our responsibilities. Ratzoi means to run, Shuv means to return. I was wondering how you were going to tie that together. Very good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> There's a method to the madness. If you were to take a trip to heaven, the heaven perspective on a relationship, what heaven values most, what they have least, but what they value most, which, by the way, that's often how it works in, in life, right? We, we appreciate things when we don't have them, unfortunately. What heaven values most is a mitzvah. Heaven values mitzvahs. Heaven, you can't do a mitzvah in heaven. You have to be on earth to do a mitzvah. But you understand the value, you understand the value in heaven. Over here, we're told that mitzvahs are valuable to God. We're told that mitzvahs are meaningful. And if we can muster up the courage to believe, we'll be we'll try to be passionate about mitzvahs. But in heaven, they understand the value. There's the story where the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shner Zalman of Liadi, told his students that in heaven, the, the angels above are jealous when we say Amen to Kaddish, they understand how valuable that is. And they would give up all the divine heavenly pleasures basking in God's radiant light to answer Amen Yehesh Meirabba to Kaddish. The Chassidim were so inspired by that they would answer Amen with fire for an entire year. In heaven, they understand the value of mitzvahs, even though you can't do it up there. Earth, what do we value here on earth? We don't value mitzvahs, responsibility. I mean, we do, we, uh, uh, we, we aspire to. But by default, naturally, what do we value? What do people want most? They want love. They want feelings. There's a great <laughs> Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of blessed memory. He was the former chief rabbi of Britain. Rabbi Dr. Lord. Jonathan Sachs, a blessed memory. You guys know Jonathan Sachs? Have you heard him before? You heard him speak before? So he was at a rabbinical conference in South Africa, speaking to a group of rabbis. And 
I think I'm exposing information. I shouldn't be sharing. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> he says to the rabbis, what is the most qu- common question? Did I say this like last week? I didn't say this to you guys last week, right? Okay. I feel like I'm going crazy. I said this to somebody last week. I'm like, oh, did I say this to the new? Am I being that guy that's repeating the same thing? Okay. So he asked the rabbis at this conference, do you know what the most common question you're going to get as a rabbi? And everybody started saying, why did the Holocaust happen? He says, no. Why do bad things happen to good people? No. People are giving their philosophical suggestions. He says, no, 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 no. You guys are getting it all wrong. This is brilliant. The most common question you're going to get as a rabbi is, Rabbi, do you remember me? What do people want most? They want to feel good. By default, right? And, you know, we try to look in life for even deeper meaning and and, and go beyond our feelings. But we want to feel good. That's the earth perspective. That's what we value on earth. It's ironic because heaven and earth have like, in heaven, they can't do any mitzvahs. But that's what they, they understand its value. On earth, we have much less passion and love than you would experience in heaven. But that's what we want. By the way, the Hebrew word for earth. What's the Hebrew word for earth? Aretz. Which comes from the word rats to run. This rutsui, this passion. This drive. The earth perspective of service to God represents the passion, the drive. The heaven perspective represents the responsibilities, the mitzvahs. That's why the, I just read this recently, the earth has one small speck in the heavens because the bigger picture is responsibility. While love and passion are important, that's just a small part of the equation. So this prayer is split in half. The first half talks about how heaven praises God through mitzvahs, through responsibility. The second half of the prayer talks about how they praise God on earth through love, through passion. And like the Yavitz, like Rabbi Yenis and Ivshitz explains, at some point heaven and earth need to meet. We've got to serve God with passion, but that passion has to be focused toward our responsibility. We need both. Very often, there is a tension between what we're passionate between serving God with passion versus responsibility. I remember about ten years ago, I was working in a yeshiva. It was a yeshiva for people who were new to Judaism as far as their education was concerned. They weren't raised with a Jewish education. They were college age students, and they wanted to learn more. And one of the fathers of the students, beautiful person, he would hang out with us, his Israeli fellow. He would hang out and learn vicariously, you know, in the evenings, whatever it is, you know, through his son. Very spiritual person. I've never met such a spiritual person in my life. I've never, I didn't know. I was young and um, my vocabulary is, uh, as you know, reduces. I was young and naive. There we go. And I didn't know that you could be spiritual without being religious. It was such a fascinating concept to kind of rethink, well, then what is the role of religion? (laughs) 
and it's it's responsibility more than just spirituality, although spirituality is an important part of it. And that, that's this Ratzoy and Shuv, uniting heaven and earth, uniting these two things. This man was so spiritual, and he really was. He wasn't yet observant. He was there to learn. Just to give you an illustration, he, he was a sensitive person. I, I remember, I'm not going to get into the details of the story now while we're being recorded, but there was a, a very specific situation. I'll tell you the story afterwards. Remind me. There was, um, but there was a very specific situation where somebody wanted to come with us somewhere and he said, don't do it. And it ended up being for that person's good. I said to him, how did you know? He said, I didn't know. I just felt like he shouldn't be coming. I'll fill you in the details later. But but the point is, he was a very deep, sensitive, spiritual person. I remember once we were sitting in the Beit Midrash, and I said to him, would you like to put on tefillin? Let's do tefillin. We have a couple extra minutes. He says, I'm going to decline. And I was shocked because he's such a spirit. I said, why? He says, because I'm just not in the mood. I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling the connection. I'm saying this without judgment. It's an observation. There was a tension between being spiritual, being passionate versus being versus um, adhering to responsibility. And sometimes we're forced to choose between one and or the other. Right? Am I going to finish the davening or am I going to try to just do what I can and feel? There, there is a tension. And it's not always clear what the right move is. Ideally, we want both. We want to celebrate responsibility and we want to do it with passion. We want heaven and earth to meet. You know where this idea is expressed also, by the way? So Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the Kohen Gadol's day, the high priest. It's his day. It's really everybody's day, but he's representing all of us in his service in the Beit HaMikdash. It's a very unique service. It's a very pure service. The one day a year he would go into the Holy of Holies. He's the only person allowed in. He's there by himself, intimately with God, representing the entire Jewish people. There's a prayer we recite in the Musaf, Mare Kohen. We sing it. We describe the radiant face that this Kohen Gadol had when he walked out of the Holy of Holies, what he looked like, the inspiration. Do you remember that song? Do you remember that song? Does it ring a bell? Okay, we're all fasting right now. <laughs> we describe the radiant face, the pureness, the light coming off of this Cohen Guddle's face. He prepared for this for an entire week. He didn't sleep the night before. He stayed up all night studying. He stayed up all night getting ready. Maimonides describes in length the laws of the service that the Kohen Gadol would perform. And he says at the end, afterwards, the Kohen Gadol, people would congratulate him, shake his hand, right? As we do when the Kohanim come off the stage, right? We thank them. And, we... and then he says, nonchalantly, he then goes home. It's an interesting thing. Why does he have to go home? Why does Maimonides say that? This is the code of Jewish law. 
He doesn't have to tell us he goes home. He doesn't have, well, he has to go home. <laughs> what if he wants to stay? What if he wants to go bowling? <laughs> I don't know if they had bowling back then. But what if he wants to go to his cousin's house? What does it mean he goes home? Like it's kind of a, again, everything is is meticulous. It's kind of an unnecessary detail, seemingly. But there's a message there. All of that inspiration and passion and love, you got to take it home. Yes, there's the Ratsoi. There's the earth perspective of I want love, I want connection, I want to aspire towards something that's beyond me. But we got to be like heaven. we got to value coming home. Value our responsibility. Value what we need to do. This is how we praise God with heaven and with earth. We engage in our responsibility. We engage in our, or try to ignite our passion, our love. Not Neither of them need to be at the expense of one another. There's a place where the two meet. Okay, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs>